Malachi chapter 1. Malachi chapter 1. We'll read from chapter 1, 6, all the way through chapter 2, verse 9. Put my bookmark in the right place here. Before we read, I'll tell you just a a brief story. We received a letter uh, at church uh, in the mail a couple weeks ago. The letter was from an organization called Kenya Hope uh, in Hudsonville. We may have heard of this organization. Uh, uh, Several weeks back, uh, several of their missionaries were killed in a car accident uh, in Kenya. And uh, the letter that was sent from this organization uh, to our church, and I assume many other churches as well, uh, it, uh, it told of the tragedy, uh, and it told of the organization's grief, and it told of the organization's plans moving forward. It told how we might pray for them in their time of sorrow, having lost uh, three of their friends uh, in the mission field. Uh, the letter told the story of a couple, Dave and Joy Mueller, who were killed in the accident. And as it told their story very briefly, there was one particular sentence uh, about them that caught my eye, and I, and I underlined it, and I kind of filed it away until this week. Uh, that one sentence, there was more written about them, of course, but the one sentence that caught my eye was this. It said, they were longtime missionaries who had little but accomplished much. They were longtime missionaries who had little but accomplished much. And I read that, and I said, wow. Wow, what a fantastic testimony. And how reverse that is from, I guess, my own life and maybe yours as well, because, because who are we? We are people who have much, but, but often accomplish very little concerning God's kingdom. But they had little and accomplished much. And this much is sure, uh, and this is the reason I underlined uh, that sentence and filed away for this week. In that couple, I think we see we see some folks who honored God. Those people showed in their lives that God was truly worthy of their lives and of all they had to give. And of course, this is to be the case for all of us. We are to be people who honor God. We are to be people who show in the way we live our lives that there is nothing more precious, nothing more valuable, nothing more worthy to us than the Lord God Almighty. We see this uh, in our text this morning, okay? Our text this morning sets before us the second dispute between God and his people in the book of Malachi. I mentioned two weeks ago when we started our study of Malachi that the book of Malachi is made up of six disputes between God and his people. This is the second one. It's also by far the longest one, okay? The first dispute is made up of five verses. Uh, The third dispute is made up of seven verses. This dispute is made up of 23 verses. I think there's something like 62 verses in all of Malachi. So this is, this is by far the longest of the six disputes. But this second dispute, it concerns God's honor. All right, it concerns God's honor. Let's read it together. Malachi chapter one, beginning at verse six. Hear now the holy inspired and inerrant word of God. 
A son honors his father and a servant his master. If then I am a father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my fear? Says the Lord of hosts to you, O priests, who despise my name. But you say, how have we despised your name? By offering polluted food upon my altar. But you say, how have we polluted you? By saying that the Lord's table may be despised. When you offer blind animals in sacrifice, is that not evil? And when you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? Present that to your governor. Will he accept you or show you favor, says the Lord of hosts? And now entreat that the favor of God, that he may be gracious to us. With such a gift from your hand, will he show favor to any of you, says the Lord of hosts? Oh, that there were one among you who would shut the doors, that you might not kindle fire on my altar in vain. I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts, and I will not accept an offering from your hand. For from the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great among the nations, and in every place incense will be offered to my name, and a pure offering. For my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. But you profane it when you say that the Lord's table is polluted, and its fruit, that is its food, may be despised. But you say, what a weariness this is, and you snort at it, says the Lord of hosts. You bring what has been taken by violence, or is lame, or sick, and this you bring as your offering. Shall I accept that from your hand, says the Lord? Cursed be the cheat who has a male in his flock, and vows it, and yet sacrifices to the Lord what is blemished. For I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name will be feared among the nations. And now, O priest, this command is for you. If you will not listen, if you will not take it to heart to give honor to my name, says the Lord of hosts, then I will send the curse upon you, and I will curse your blessings. Indeed, I have already cursed them because you do not lay it to heart. Behold, I will rebuke your offspring and spread dung on your faces, the dung of your offerings, and you shall be taken away with it. So shall you know that I have sent this command to you, that my covenant with Levi may stand, says the Lord of hosts. My covenant with him was one of life and peace, and I gave them to him. It was a covenant of fear, and he feared me. He stood in awe of my name. True instruction was in his mouth, and no wrong was found on his lips. He walked with me in peace and uprightness, and he turned many from iniquity. For the lips of a priest should guard knowledge, and people should seek instruction from his mouth. For he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. But you have turned aside from the way. You have caused many to stumble by your instruction. You have corrupted the covenant of Levi, says the Lord of hosts. And so I make you despised and abased before all the people. And as much as you do not keep my ways, but show partiality in your instruction. As far as the reading of God's word. Where is my honor? Where is my honor? This is the question that God put to his people through the prophet Malachi long ago. It's the question that God puts to his people again this morning through his word. Where is my honor? 
This morning, we're going to consider this question. And we're going to consider it in two parts. First, we'll consider the people to whom God asks this question. And then second, we'll consider the God who asks his people this question. So first, the people to whom God asks this question. Second, the God who asks his people this question. So first, the people whom God asks this question. Where is my honor? We'll notice this is a question asked first and foremost to priests. We see that in chapter 1, 6, and in chapter 2, verse 1. Now, who were the priests? Well, the priests were from the tribe of Levi. The priests were descendants of Aaron. The priests' fundamental job in Israel was to govern the worship of God's people. We might say that of all the people in Israel, the priests were uniquely set apart to bring honor to God. In fact, if we look down at chapter 2, verses 5 through 7, we'll see exactly what God expected from the priests. There in those verses, we read about, about his covenant with Levi. Levi was one of the 12 sons of Jacob. Levi uh, was the first priest. And in this covenant with Levi, God lays out his expectations for the priests. What are the priests to do according to the covenant of Levi? Well, they're to, they're to stand in awe of God's name. They're to honor God. They're to walk in peace and uprightness, and, and they're to call sinners to repentance. Their lips are to guard knowledge and to offer instruction to the people. They are to be messengers of the Lord. All right, the priests were uniquely set apart in Israel to bring honor to God. Now, all of Israel was to bring honor to God, but the priests, the priests were uniquely set apart to do it, even amongst the people of Israel. Now, as we see this, we, we ought to remember what the New Testament tells us about believers in Jesus Christ. It says something that's very relevant here. 1 Peter 2, verse 9, but you, Christian... But you, believers, are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Okay, people of God, okay, boys and girls, in the New Testament, we learn that all who trust in Jesus Christ are priests. All who trust in Jesus Christ have been uniquely set apart by God to bring honor to God, to proclaim the excellencies, Peter says, of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. So in Christ, we, all of us, are a people set apart to stand in awe of God's name and to walk in peace and uprightness and to call sinners to repentance and offer instruction to God's people, okay? In Christ, that's our calling, that's our task, that's our job. And so we must recognize right at the outset that this question, where is my honor, this is not some dusty old question asked to an ancient people long ago. No, this is a relevant question asked by God to believers in Jesus today. Where is my 
honor. Well, let's notice second that this is also a question asked of those who happen to be, at this moment in history, giving to God their leftovers. When the priests ask, how have we despised your name? God points them to the sacrifices that they have been offering. Verse 8, when you offer blind animals in sacrifice, is that not evil? And when you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? Present that to your governor. Will he accept you or show you favor, says the Lord of hosts? And then again, down in verses 13 and 14, you bring what's been taken by violence or what's lame or sick. And this you bring as your offering. Shall I accept that from your hand, says the Lord? Cursed be the cheat who has a male in his flock and yet sacrifices to the Lord what is blemished. All right, God had told his people very clearly in Leviticus and throughout the Old Testament that when they brought an animal to to sacrifice, it was to be a male without blemish. These animals being offered in Malachi's day, they don't fit that description, do they? They're blemished. They're blind, they're lame, they're sick. And to put it simply, the people of Malachi's day, they were offering to God their leftovers rather than their best. They were giving God what they could spare rather than what might cost them something. And let's be honest, we sometimes do the same thing, don't we? We offer God what's, what's left of our time, right? Yeah, we'll, we'll serve Christ's church, but only insofar as it doesn't interfere with our kids' schedules. Only insofar as it doesn't interfere with our time for golf or hunting. Only insofar as it doesn't interfere with our Winter down south. I actually knew a man one time, and uh, I knew his pastor really well. This is where I heard the story. Uh, this man was a gift to his church, just a tremendous leader. And his church was going through a very hard time, and his church needed the gifts of leadership that he could provide. He refused to let his name stand for elder because he was determined to spend the winter in Arizona. That was put to him before he left, like, hey, we, we need you, like, we really need you right now, and he, he wouldn't give up his winter in Arizona. Things didn't get better while he was gone. Things got worse. They could have used him, but that, that's, that's often how we roll, isn't it? There are things every one of us wants to do, and we pencil these things on our calendar, and we work our worship and service of God in and around those things. And to us, God says, where is my honor? Some of us offer God what's left of our, of our energy, right? We get up in the morning, and as soon as we get up, it is, it is game on. It is time to go. Get the kids to school, get to work, stop at the store, run to the doctor, attend this meeting, attend that meeting, pick the kids up from school, run to basketball practice, meeting at church. Finally, we sit down at night, we, we try, we try to spend some time in God's word, we try to pray, we've got nothing left, we just, we just fall asleep. 
I'll be honest, I was there last night. It's a busy day, had a lot going on. I was laying in bed thinking about this morning and just trying to prepare my heart for this morning, and next thing I knew, it was this morning. All right. God says, where is my honor? Others of us offer God what's left of our money, don't we? Rather than, rather than setting aside a sum of money at the beginning of the week, rather than making that the top line in our budget, we, we, we make it the bottom line in our budget, and we give God what we can spare. And again, God says what? Where is my honor? God asks this question of those who are giving unto him their leftovers. This question is also asked, we might notice, of those who are offering to God begrudging worship and service. Look at what the people of Malachi's day were saying, verse 13. But you say, what a weariness this is. And you snort at it, says the Lord of hosts. Okay, this was the people's attitude to their worship of God and their service of God in Malachi's day. They were wearied by it. They worshiped and served God with a begrudging spirit. They called worship a burden rather than a blessing. They considered serving God a chore rather than a privilege. What a weariness this is, they said, when confronted with the service of God. I remember hearing a story of a man uh, his wife actually ratted him out. Uh, she said that every week when her husband wrote out the check for their weekly offering in church, he, he was angry about it. It just pained him to write that check. You almost had to pry that check out of his cold, dead fingers, as someone once said. He wrote that check with a begrudging Spirit, upset that God would ask him to give up his precious money. What a weariness this is. That was what he was saying in his heart. I've had to battle this attitude while helping people. There have been times when God has called me to help people in need. Probably done the same thing to you. And although I, I might help these people, there's been times when I've helped them and was very ornery about it. I helped them with a begrudging spirit. I helped them as one who thought, what a weariness this is serving God according to his word. I've got better things I could be doing. And to people with attitudes like this, to people who find their service to God a burden rather than a privilege, a drudgery rather than a joy. God says, where is my honor? But there's still one more thing we can say about those to whom God asked this question because he asked this question of those who've also turned aside from his way. This is ultimately what the priests of Malachi's day had done. We see that down in chapter 2, verse 8. There God says, but you have turned aside from the way. Whenever we turn aside from God's way, whenever we follow our hearts or listen to the world rather than God's word, God says, where is my honor? Okay, people of God, we do not honor God when we turn aside from his way, do we? I don't think that surprises you. 
No, we dishonor God when we turn aside from his way. We dishonor God when we do the things he's told us not to do. And when we don't do the very things he's told us to do. So God asked this question too of people who've turned aside from his way. Where is my honor? So generally, generally God asked this question to priests. He asked this question to believers who've been set apart in Christ to bring honor and glory to his name. Specifically, he asked this question to those who are giving him the leftovers of their life, to those who are offering begrudging worship, to those who've turned aside from his way. Where is my honor? Well, let's consider second, the God who asks this question to his people. It's noteworthy how thoroughly the Lord reveals himself throughout this passage of scripture. Because he, he, he reveals the truth about himself in, in a number of ways. In the first place, he calls himself father. Verse six, if I am a father, where is my honor? The implication there is, of course, I am a father, so honor me. But God calls himself father. A father's to be honored. God is our father, and therefore, therefore God is to be honored. That's the simple point. In the second place, God calls himself master. We see that also in verse 6. If I am a master, where is my fear? That word master means that God is the one who, who possesses all authority over us. He is the one to whom we belong. He is the one to whom we'll have to answer and give an account. This too is another reason God deserves honor. He's our master. He's sovereign over our lives. In the third place, God calls himself the Lord of hosts. And actually, he doesn't just call himself the Lord of hosts one time, or two times, or three times, or four times, or five times in our passage. He calls himself the Lord of hosts 11 times just in our passage. If there's one thing God wants you to know, it's that he is the Lord of hosts. Now, this is a, this is a, this is a majestic name for God. It doesn't translate that majestically into English, right? Lord of hosts? When I was a kid, I would think of a hostess at the restaurant, and I was like, just didn't add, right? What's a host? Well, it's a heavenly host, right? Uh, and when we say that God is, God is the Lord of hosts, it means that God is, he is the God of the hosts of heaven. He is the God of, of the angel armies, is how some translate it who run to and fro across the earth to, to serve those who will inherit salvation. If you really want to know what it means that the Lord is the Lord of hosts, uh, just remember there, a story told in 2 Kings 6, one of the best. Elisha got really, really, really under the skin of the king of Syria. And the king of Syria said, well, we need to do away with this man, Elisha. He's a problem. 
And so the king of Syria finds out where Elisha is, and the king of Syria sends horses and chariots and a great army to come by night and surround the city so that they might seize Elisha. Elisha's servant wakes up in the morning. He steps out of his tent. He looks up and he says, uh-oh. He sees that they're, they're surrounded. He and Elisha are surrounded by a great army. And Elisha's servant says what any one of us might have said, Elisha, what are we going to do? <laughs> and Elisha says, I wish I knew how Elisha actually said this. Maybe he didn't even hardly crawl out of bed, right? But don't be afraid. For those who are with us are more than those who are with them. And then Elisha prayed, O Lord, open my servant's eyes that he may see. And we're told the Lord opened Elisha's servant's eyes, and suddenly Elisha's servant saw that all around him and Elisha were horses and chariots of fire. And when the Syrians came down to attack, well, let's just say they were absolutely no match for that angel army. In fact, they were utterly humiliated by that angel army. Humiliated. But that whole scene shows us what is captured by this name, the Lord of hosts. It's a name which declares that God is mighty. God is powerful. God is not to be messed with. God is holy, holy, holy. God calls himself something else in our text. He calls himself a great king whose name will be honored in all the earth. We see that in verse 14. This, of course, is... Just another reason God deserves honor. I mean, you give honor to a king, right? Especially a king who has worldwide dominion. In the fifth place, God shows us, doesn't he? That if we won't honor him, he'll find someone who will. That's the fifth thing we learn about God here. If we won't honor him, he'll find someone who will. We see this in verses 10 and 11. Listen to what God says. Oh, that there were one among you who would shut the doors, that you might not kindle fire on my altar in vain. I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts. I won't accept an offering from your hand. For from the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great among the nations. In these verses, God says, listen, listen, if you won't honor me, I'll find someone who will. If you won't honor me, I will shut the temple down and take this program somewhere else. And to some degree, that happens in the New Testament, doesn't it? The Jews reject the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul says salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. God told them if they didn't honor him, he'd take this program elsewhere, and the New Testament God does. God says, see, I told you so. You wouldn't honor me, so I went and found someone who would. Something similar happens in Revelation 2 as well. The angel there is speaking to the church in Ephesus. Listen to what the angel says to the church in Ephesus. I have this against you, 
You have abandoned your first love. Remember from where you have fallen. Repent. Do the works you did at first. If you don't, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. God says, I'll remove the lampstand. By that he means, I'll close the doors of your church. I'll take this salvation program elsewhere. I'll find somewhere else to put my lampstand and proclaim my glory. This is what God does to those who do not honor him. Eventually, he just leaves them and their dishonor and finds someone who will honor him. When I was, uh, when I was in seminary, one of our assignments, it was, a, it was a great assignment. I'm glad they asked us to do this. They, they, one of our assignments was to go to Fountain Street Church, downtown Grand Rapids. How many of you are familiar with Fountain Street Church? Right? Fountain Street Church is a church that is completely, years ago already, completely abandoned the gospel. Right? Completely. It's a church that proclaims uh, humanistic universalism. All right? If you go there on a Sunday, you'll hear them, you might hear them reading the Bible, but you'll hear them reading the Bhagavad Gita and the Quran and, and all of these things. Right? That's, that's Fountain Street Church. Uh, anyways, we go there on a Sunday morning, and the church is big, and the church is beautiful, and, and the church is, is used for many events downtown. I think that's the only thing keeping it open, because when we went there on a Sunday morning, there was hardly anybody there. I mean, you could have thrown a baseball across that church. You never, you never would have hit anybody. Right? It used to be a big, thriving church 100 years ago, but, but they abandoned the gospel. There's hardly anyone there for worship at all. And, and, to me, that, that's, that's simply what happens to such churches. In a strange way, God closes their doors and doesn't let people in and sort of says, enough of this, enough of this. I'll take my program elsewhere. Perhaps that's happening somewhat in our own denomination, right? As churches abandon the gospel, as our numbers shrink, God is saying, just shut the doors. I'll find someone else to be faithful to my word to bring honor and glory to my son. In the sixth place, let's notice that this God who asks, where is my honor? He shows himself here to be merciful, doesn't he? Yes, it's true. Those who refuse to honor God, they will be cursed. Verse 14, cursed be the cheat who has a male in his flock and doesn't give it. Verse 2, if you will not listen, if you will not take it to heart to give honor to my name, says the Lord, I'll send a curse upon you, and I'll curse your blessings. Indeed, I've already cursed them. I will rebuke your offspring and spread dung on your faces. Verses 8b and 9, you have corrupted the covenant of Levi, says the Lord of hosts. I make you despised and abased before all the people. Those who do not honor God will be cursed. Truly, it's as simple as the prophet Samuel said it would be. Those who honor God, he will honor. Those who despise God shall be themselves despised. It's that simple. And yet we ought to to note well what else God says to these priests who are not honoring him. Chapter 1, verse 9, And now entreat the favor of God that he may be gracious. Chapter 2, verse 2, there's an important word there, isn't there? If, if you will not listen, if you will not take it to heart to give honor to my name. It's clear what God's doing here, isn't it? He's giving these people an opportunity to repent. He's saying, listen, you haven't been honoring me, and that's not okay. That's a sin. 
Should you remain in that sin, you will be cursed. But here's the deal. You can repent, and you can discover that I am indeed a merciful and gracious God, slow to anger and abounding in love and forgiving sins. And isn't this good news for you, for me? That embedded in this very text where God calls us out for not honoring him as we ought is, is the promise of restoration and forgiveness and mercy for all who confess their sins and give God, give God the honor that's due him. I want you to notice one more thing about this God who asks, where is my honor? And it's that this God who asks, where is my honor? Shows himself in our text to be the one who will perfect our imperfect and blemished attempts to honor him. In this text, God, God shows himself to be the one who will perfect our imperfect and blemished attempts to honor him. Let's see that. Verse 11, God says, For from the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great among the nations, and in every place incense will be offered to my name and a pure offering. The Lord here is speaking about a time when he will be honored beyond the borders of Israel. A time when he will be honored in every nation. And remarkably, he says that in that time, people will offer unto him a pure offering. That is, they won't, they won't offer blemished sacrifices like they were in Malachi's day. No, they'll be offering sacrifices that are pleasing to God. They'll be offering sacrifices that bring honor to God. Now here's the question, how would this be? If by the end of the Old Testament, which is where we are in the book of Malachi, after all the prophets, all the priests, all the kings, after the exodus and the promised land and the exile, after the law and the covenants and the return from exile and the patriarchs and everything else that's happened, if after all of this, God's people still don't know how to honor him as they ought, why should we think they'll ever honor him as they ought? Well, there's a hint. Way back in the book of Exodus. Exodus 28, verse 36 tells us, this is what we read there. You shall make a plate of pure gold and engrave on it like the engraving of a signet, holy to the Lord. And you shall fasten it on the turban by a cord of blue. It shall be on the front of the turban. It shall be on Aaron's forehead. And Aaron shall bear any guilt from the holy things that the people of Israel consecrate as their holy gifts. It shall regularly be on his forehead that their gifts may be accepted before the Lord. What do we learn there in Exodus 28? Well, we learn that in reality, everything God's people offer to the Lord is blemished. Okay, our sacrifices are never pure. Our sacrifices are always stained by sin. And so what we need then to truly honor God is someone who can purify our offerings. 
and make them acceptable to the Lord. In the book of Exodus, that job is given to the high priest Aaron through this plate of gold which is placed on his forehead. But rest assured, you're smart people, that is, that is simply a foreshadowing of things to come. For in the book of Hebrews, we find out that it is Christ who is the great high priest over the house of God. And it is Christ who stands in Aaron's place and makes intercession for sinners like us. You see, beloved, Christ's blood was shed on the cross for all our sins. And by that blood, he purifies even our, even our imperfect and sin-stained worship, our blemished worship, and he makes it pleasing to God. Okay, by his blood, Christ takes my pathetic attempts to honor God, and he takes your pathetic attempts to honor God, and he cleanses them, and he sanctifies them, and he causes them to be pure offerings unto God. Offerings that bring honor and glory to his name. Listen to what Peter says. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices that are acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Do you see it, beloved? The one who asks, where is my honor, is the one who in grace and mercy and love perfects our pathetic attempts to honor him through Jesus Christ, our Lord. But he does tell us, doesn't he, that we must love Jesus. We must trust Jesus. We must recognize that the only way, the only way any of us can honor God as we ought is in and through Jesus. Jesus said this himself, John 5, 22 and 23. The Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. To honor God, we must love Jesus. To honor God, we must trust Jesus. We must offer up to God sacrifices of praise through Jesus. Because only Jesus can take the, the blemished offerings of sinners like us and make them pleasing in the sight of our holy God. Beloved, this is the God who asks his people, where is my honor? And having seen this, I leave you with one simple application. Don't be a fool. Don't be a fool. Only a fool wouldn't honor this God. 
Only a fool despises his father's instruction. Only a fool despises the one who is sovereign over his life and has the authority and power to cast his soul into hell. Only a fool would dishonor the Lord of hosts and the great king who possesses worldwide dominion. Only a fool would dishonor a God so merciful that he offers him yet another chance. Only a fool would despise the riches of God's kindness to sinners in Jesus Christ. Don't be a fool. Honor God. Trust his son. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we give you thanks and praise for your son. We give you thanks and praise for the way in which he, he receives our blemished and sin-stained offerings to you and cleanses them by his blood and makes them holy and acceptable in your sight. Help us to love him. Help us to trust him. Help us to honor you. For Jesus' sake, amen.